Rafe, thank you. Uh, kids, you guys are dismissed if you guys are in here. Uh, friends, if we can, let's open up our Bibles to Exodus chapter 5. Exodus chapter 5. Uh, as Rafe mentioned, my name is Kenson. Uh, and yes, I am Asian. Uh, I, I, am, I am different from Rafe, but even though we're different, uh, we are brothers from a different mother. But you know what? We're still family. So uh, as you guys are turning to Exodus chapter 5, uh, we're continuing back in our sermon series in the book of Exodus. And where we land in our verses is somewhere very exciting uh, with the story of the ten plagues. Famous story, but here's the problem. It covers over seven chapters, okay? So today we won't have a chance to go into all of the detail. And for the last plague, uh, the death of the firstborn, we'll save that for next week. But what we'll try to do here today is cover the nine plagues, the first nine plagues broadly. And even though each of these plagues are different, what they signify is very much the same. All right. So with that, let's read our verses and, and jump in. We have a lot of content to work through today. All right. So Exodus chapter 5, starting at verses 1 here. It says this, Afterward Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. If we can, let's jump to chapter 6 here. And let's look at verses 1 and 8. Chapter 6, verses 1 and 8. The Lord responds. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard their groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. So therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from the slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of, e of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So real quick, some context and recap here, right? So the Egyptians currently are being oppressed and enslaved by Pharaoh. So God raises up an 80-year-old Moses to be their deliverer. And as you guys heard last week, and Rafe did a fantastic job, Moses receives his calling through a burning bush. And it's in that moment, Moses hears the name of God. I am who I am, and I will free my people. So Moses goes back to Egypt and tells them the news, tells, tells the Israelites this news of deliverance. So the Israelites rightly respond in worship. They bow down hearing that incredible news. That's how chapter 4 ends. But now in chapter 5, the real hard work begins, telling Pharaoh this news of deliverance. And in chapter 5, we see this. In verse 1, they go to Pharaoh. And in verse 2, Pharaoh says to Moses and Aaron, 
Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? This is the question that for the next seven chapters, God is going to answer through the ten plagues. Now, it's important to understand what exactly is making Pharaoh so resistant right now. It's not because the Israelites and Moses believed in God. You know, Egypt was a polytheistic society. They believed in hundreds of gods. Even Pharaoh believed that he was a god, a small G god, but he was God. So the belief in God was not the problem. The problem was that the God of the Israelites was trying to tell him what to do. Yahweh was claiming authority over his life, and he hated it. And what we see in this moment is the very same human condition that we all share. That just like the Egyptians, we're not offended by the idea of religion or the idea that people, you know, believe in different gods or have different faiths. You know, we come from Chicago, a place of many diverse beliefs. What is offensive is when someone claims that their God has authority over my life. That when someone says, my God is right, your God is wrong, no, 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 you can't do that. That is wrong for you to say. We naturally, as human beings, reject any authority besides our own. And this has been the central problem of humanity since the beginning of creation. When Satan introduced the idea to Adam and Eve, did God really say not to eat of the tree? Do you really have to listen to God? If you eat the fruit here, you will be just like God. So they ate it. What we have here is the very root of sin. Because every time we choose to sin, we are saying, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Instead, what we say is, I have ultimate authority, not him. I'm big, he's small. You know, in our chapters today, God is going to step right into Pharaoh's question, and he's going to expose the illusion of self-sovereignty, that God will say over and over again to Pharaoh that he alone is great and powerful, that he alone is worthy of worship and devotion. In chapter 5, verse 1, the Lord says, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Let my people go so that they can worship me. In chapter 7, verse 5, the Lord says, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. In chapter 9, verse 16, God says again, but for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. What you will see in this story is that the suffering of the Israelites, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, the plagues, and the eventual deliverance of God's people, everything and everyone is done is so that you would know who God is. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? God will answer it through the ten plagues. And here are the three ways God reveals who he is. And let me show it to you. The three points is this. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? First is this, he alone is God. Second, he alone is judge. And third, he alone is Savior. So let's look at the first point here. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? It's because he alone is God. Now, the first sign that we see here, not the first plague, but the first sign or act from God is, is that when he shows Pharaoh who he really is, is by turning Aaron's staff 
into a snake. Okay, that's not the first plague, but the first sign. In chapter 7, verses 10 and 12, it says this. Chapter 7, verse 10 and 12. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. So Moses comes to Pharaoh, and Aaron's staff turns into snake. Now, that's pretty cool. Now, that, 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 that to me is like, okay, there's a guy. That, that's pretty awesome. But then the magicians of Egypt come, and they do the same exact thing. So Pharaoh is left unimpressed. But what's interesting is that in verse 15, it says, oh, yeah, that's nice, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staff. Now, what's happening here is very significant because the snake was not just some random reptile in Egypt, but it was the symbol of sovereignty, royalty, deity, and divine authority for, the, for Pharaoh. And let me just show you the headdress of Pharaoh here. That if you look here, you see the headdress of Pharaoh, and you also see that you also see the head of a cobra. That what you see here is that a snake represents his power and kingship. So when Aaron's staff becomes a snake and eats his snake, the primary miracle and message here is not the fact that the staff turned into a snake. The primary message here is that this snake ate his snake here. That my power is greater than your power. It's like someone walking into the White House and they throw down a bald eagle. And that bald eagle eats the president's bald eagle, right? That would, it, would be, it, would be, it would be too much to see, right? But, but that's what's going on here, right? That Pharaoh's power is swallowed up by God's power. And this is the warning shot. Pharaoh, wake up. This is what's coming. But because of this prideful rejection, God brings to bear the ten plagues to Egypt. And let me just show you what they would look like here. I know it's a really small table here. But what you see here is the ten plagues. The Nile turned to blood. The frogs, the gnats, you know, mosquitoes or lice, the flies, the plague on cattle or livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, death of the firstborn. Now, when God brings these ten plagues, what we need to understand here is that God is doing so much more right now than making the lives of Pharaoh and the Egyptians inconvenient, that these plagues are to show that God alone is God. That 12 times in these chapters, God says these specific words, you shall know that I am the Lord. Exodus 6-2, 6-6, 6-7, 6-8, 6-9, 7-5, 7-17, 8-10, 8-22, 9-14, 9-29, 10-2, I am the Lord. And the way that God will prove this claim is that the plagues confront the false gods that Egypt worships, that every plague addresses this issue. So for example, in the first plague with the Nile, the God that they worshipped was the God Happy. Right? I, know, I know it sounds weird, right? but it's Happy. And Happy was believed to give the Nile its source of life. So when God turns this Nile into blood and makes the water undrinkable, he is telling Pharaoh and the Egyptians, Happy is not the source of life. Me, Yahweh, is the source of life. Or when the livestock was diseased, or when the locusts and hail came in and brought death to all the crops and animals, the Egyptians worshipped a pantheon of gods who they believed would protect the harvest, that would protect the cattle. And God shows over and over again that he will have no rival, that he alone is God. Every plague 
shows over and over again just how weak and disappointing their idols were. Now, what does this mean for us? Who do we trust to give us life? That just like the Egyptians, that is what an idol was. That's what these false gods were. They were things that they trusted in to bring them about life. Now, for many of us here, we might not have an altar of all these false gods, but we do have our idols, our careers, our monies, you know, our looks, our accomplishments, our pedigree, our, our relationships, our kids, that we take these good things from God and we make them the ultimate thing that we believe that they give us life and not God. And just like the Egyptians, what we will learn is that they will always let us down. You know, author and professor David Foster Wallace writes this. Let me read it to you. He writes this. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Our idols will always leave us empty, discontent, and thirsty. And what's so interesting here is that when the Egyptians experienced the first plague with the Nile turning to blood and nothing is drinkable and usable, instead of crying out to God and turning to him, it says in chapter 7, verse 24, And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. That they would rather dig in the dirt and drink dirty water than come to God. How many of us are right now content with drinking dirty water? That instead of coming to God, we continue to dig up ditches. That we continue to trust our own efforts, even though God has laid us bare. And we continue to let our idol keep us dying of thirst. You know, in 1942, you know, men from the Royal Air Force took a training mission in the Sahara Desert. And somewhere during this trip, they lost their bearings and they had no idea how to get back to base. And there was no sign of civilization anywhere. It was just sand. The radios were silent and they were trapped in the middle of the desert. Now, what took place was found in one of the men's journal. That because of the unrelenting heat, they were overwhelmed with thirst. That after their water supply was drained... They drank anything that they could get their hands on. Syrup from the canned fruit, oil from the can of sardines. And when all was gone, they broke open their compasses and drank the alcohol from inside those compasses, which was poison. Now, these men were not trying to kill themselves, but they were so thirsty that they would drink anything. How many of you are drinking from a ditch when Jesus offers you living water that will never, ever run dry. You know, C.S. Lewis said this. Let me show it to you. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Who is God that I should obey him? He alone is God. He alone is the one that can care for your soul because he is the creator of your soul. Here's the second thing we learn about God and why we should obey him. He alone is judge. Now, something else to notice about these plagues here is that they increase 
in severity, that they move from being inconvenient to being devastating. That the Nile turns to blood. Okay, that's bad, but I can dig a ditch. The frogs are hopping everywhere, annoying but bearable. Nants and flies are buzzing everywhere, frustrating, but I'll survive. The livestock begin to die, which is a primary source of income. Okay, now it's starting to hurt a bit. Boils affect your body. That's physical suffering. Hail wipes out the crops and animals. The locusts finish off anything else that has survived. And then it becomes complete darkness. And darkness would have been terrifying. That it would have been a symbol of a sign of death that is coming. And then finally, the death of the firstborn son. Do you see here? The price and consequences of these plagues get worse and worse and worse and worse. And the reason for this is because these plagues were a judgment against Pharaoh and the hardness of his heart towards God, that every single sign or plague, Pharaoh's heart continually responds with hardness. And you see it in the slide over here, right? Pharaoh's heart was hardened. It was hardened. It was hardened. It was hard over and over again. God would show these plagues and Pharaoh would respond with hardness of heart. That's what's going on here. Now this leads to a very common question. Well, Kenson here, who hardens? Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Did, did, did he do it himself or did God do it? In these verses, both are said to be true, that Pharaoh hardened it and God hardened it. Hardened it. Now, I know there's a tension here because if God hardened his heart, did Pharaoh ever really have a free choice? Was he just a puppet? And, and I know that this brings up this whole idea of God's sovereignty and, and free will and how this all works out. I don't have time to answer this today, but ask Rafe, go to apologetics class. I, I'm, sure, I'm sure they'll answer it for you, right? But what is clear from our text is that even though God is sovereign, we are still responsible for our decisions. And in this case, nothing is happening that is going against Pharaoh's desires. He is choosing to rebel, and at the same time, this is also a part of God's plan. Divine hardening and self-hardening are all interwoven. So God brings judgment through these plagues to Pharaoh's sinful pride. Now, this is what's fascinating, so interesting. That numerous times, it seems as though Pharaoh finally humbles himself before God. That by the seventh plague with the hail, Pharaoh, he, he, he repents. He repents. Exodus chapter 9, verses 27 and 28 says this. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to him, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong Plead with the Lord, for there have been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. And as soon as he says that, God relents. But then Pharaoh goes back on his word, on his word and he does not let the people go. All right, maybe this is a one-off situation. So with the eighth plague, with the locusts, Pharaoh cries out again. Exodus chapter 10, 16 and 17. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. Wow. If someone came up after a worship gathering and said to Rafe or myself, please forgive me, please, please forgive my sins, I know that I have been wrong, you know, God is right. We would be like, that's awesome. The day of salvation has finally come on you. But again, we see here, Pharaoh keeps turning his back on his word. What's going on here? Pharaoh is demonstrating 
worldly sorrow for sin and not godly sorrow. That on the surface, it looks the same, but at the heart level, they are radically different. That for Pharaoh, what drives him to God is not because he loves God or that he wants to be right with him. He runs to God because he wants his painful circumstances to go away. That, that it might seem that these plagues get worse and worse and that Pharaoh is moving closer and closer to God, but he is still yet miles away because his repentance is not genuine. He is just using God. His heart is still hard towards him. He is still in charge of his life. And this is the caution for us. We too can repent and never truly surrender to God. That because of sin in our lives, God brings judgment. That there are natural consequences of our sin. It brings brokenness, guilt, and shame. It can damage relationships. It can damage our reputation. Or in James chapter 5, sin can literally bring about physical sickness, potentially death. And just like Pharaoh, we experience the discipline of God. And we can come to a point close to a point of acknowledging God and saying, God, you're right. I'm wrong. Please forgive me. Please save me. I'll start going to church. I'll start going to small group. I'll start buying books, you know, to read about you. But when the circumstances let up, we begin to change our mind. God, life is miserable. It hurts. I'm struggling. I need you. But today, you know, it's okay. So I don't need you. I'm fine. This is worldly sorrow. This is a hard heart. Godly sorrow, true repentance is more than just words. It is a heart that wants to be right with God more than having the right circumstance. It's it's a confession to God with no conditions. That so often when we pray to God, God, I will love you if you do this. God, I will follow you if you give me this. No, true repentance says, God, I love you and follow you Period. There's nothing else added to it. Friends, if God, friends, is God trying to get your attention because of your sin? Is he warning you? Is he bringing you to the end of yourself? If so, will you repent? Or will you be like Pharaoh and harden your heart towards his discipline? Here's the third point. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? He alone is Savior. Now, what we've seen with the plagues is that they have served as a form of judgment towards Pharaoh. But what we need to know here is that punishment is not the primary purpose. That the end goal of these plagues is not retribution. It is mercy and salvation. Now, we see this in a couple of ways. First is this. God sets the Israelites apart. That by the fourth plague with the flies, God begins to protect his people. In Exodus 8.22, it says this, chapter 8, verse 22. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people, Israelites, dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Okay, So the flies go to the Egyptians and not the Israelites. Only the Egyptians' livestock are killed. Only the Egyptians get boils. Only the Egyptians get hail. That God, over and over again, is protecting his people from judgment. Now the question we have to ask here is why? Why does God do that? Is it because the Israelites were better than the Egyptians? Were they more pure? Were they more righteous? Absolutely not. 
That throughout the book of Exodus, as we will see over and over again, the Israelites are so foolish and stupid over and over again that they whine and they complain and they want to turn around. That they are so faithless that God says to an entire generation that you can't enter the promised land. When Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to talk with God to get the Ten Commandments, when he comes back down, do you remember what the people are doing? They have built a golden calf. That is an Egyptian god, Apis. That is the god of economic prosperity. They're going back to an Egyptian god. Were these Israelites better than the Egyptians? They were not. So why did God set the Israelites apart? It's simply because of his grace. Let me show you Deuteronomy chapter 7 and why God says that he has set these people apart. Deuteronomy 7 the Lord says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of their earth. That is amazing. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because that the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God protects the Israelites not because they were great, not because they were strong, not because they deserved it, not because they earned it. He chose to do it simply because he loved them. You know, we also see hints of his mercy in how God handles Pharaoh. That as hard and painful as the plagues were, God was always so quick to relent at the first sign of repentance that it's almost, it almost seems like this. It almost seems that as soon as Pharaoh experiences the plagues, he says, mercy, mercy, mercy. And God right away lets go of his hand on the plague. That God gave space every single time with each and every one of these plagues, a space to repent. That is a sign of mercy. And finally, God wanted to spare people, even his enemies, from the anguish of these plagues. For example, in the seventh plague with the hail, he says to Moses in chapter 9, verse 19, Moses, give everyone, the Israelites, the, the Egyptians, even Pharaoh, give everyone, let them know that hail is coming. So tell them to get the cattle out of the field or else they'll get hurt. In addition, he sends the hail at night when no one is outside. Now, to me, this is confusing, right? If God's going to bring a plague, if he's going to bring punishment, that is not how you do it. That if you want to cause mass panic, mass chaos, maximum bloodshed, bring the hail during the day and when no one is expecting it. That's what you need to do. But do you see here? God does not delight in punishing people. He delights in rescuing people. 2 Peter 3.9 says this. Let me show it to you from the NIV. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The plagues here were not sent to condemn, they were sent to save. It was a merciful judgment. It was meant to wake us up to sin. It was to expose the illusion that we are in control. You know, I love the lines from the hymn, Amazing Grace. Then in one of the lines it says this, let me show it to you. 
"'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." What? Grace brings fear? Yes, it does, because grace exposes the horror of sin and the righteous judgment of God for that sin. And grace, my fears relieved. It's also this same grace that brings hope because we have a God who isn't content to punish, but one that is determined to save and rescue. Again, the plagues were sent to save, that it was through the judgment of the plagues here that God would save the Israelites. Did you guys hear that? That it was through judgment that God would bring salvation. Does that sound familiar? It should, because that's exactly how God saved us. Salvation through judgment. That Jesus was judged on the cross. That he experienced the wrath of God, the, the plagues, if we can say that, so that we could be saved. That, that on the cross, Jesus becomes the enemy of God. That on the cross, the justice of God fell on Jesus. On the cross, the literal darkness and spiritual darkness of separation from God came upon Jesus. On the cross, Jesus was punished and God put a hedge of protection around us. Why did Jesus do this? It's because he's the greater and better Moses. He's the greater and better Exodus. Again, in Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, it says this, But for this purpose, God says, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. That God has allowed all this to happen so that he would be proclaimed. Not just proclaimed amongst the Egyptians and the Israelites. He desires to be proclaimed to the very ends of the earth. He wants every generation, every people group, every language to know his power that he is a great God, and yes, he has the power to bring plagues, but he also has the power to bring about salvation. The power to conquer sin, death, and Satan, and the power to rise again. Even before the very first plague, even before the very first sign of the staff turning into the snake, God promises that all that you will see will lead us to your deliverance. Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 to 8. God makes this promise. And notice as you look at these verses, how often God says, I will. I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. I will bring you into the land. I will give it to you for a possession. I will, I will, I will, I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will save you. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? He is the Lord who saves. He is the Lord who is gracious and merciful. Amen? Amen. As we end, let me just ask you this. Do you know the Lord? Now, what I mean by that is not knowledge, but intimacy. Because Pharaoh, he, he knew God, right? He, he used the name of the Lord, Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, right? He asked God for forgiveness. He knew what God wanted from him, let my people go. He knew God in his head, but never in his heart. 
that it was information that never led to transformation. Let me ask you, what is your obedience saying right now about what you know about your God? What is your life revealing about your heart? Is it a hard heart? If so, God, again, is calling you to repent. That repentance simply defined means giving up, just giving up and to stop fighting against God. It means turning 180 degrees that you turn away from yourself, no more to me, no more to Kenson, and you turn to God and you trust him and you live for him and know that when you make that turn that God is right there to embrace and forgive you. Now, for some of you, maybe it's not a hard heart, but maybe it's a compromised heart. That in some areas, you trust God, but in other areas, you don't. That you have God here, but then you also worship these false gods in these other areas of your life. What God is calling you is to step out in greater trust. That for you to know what he wants, that, 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 that right now it's not for you to know more of who he is or to know what he wants from you because you already have all that. What needs to happen is that you need to obey. That the problem for so many of us in this room here isn't the fact that we can't obey, but is that we won't obey. It's not until we're willing to take bold steps for God will we be able to experience who God really is. Do you want to know that God is really generous? Give sacrificially. Do you really want to experience God's forgiveness? Forgive your enemies. Do you really want to know God's power? Proclaim courageously. Do you really want to know God's grace? Cry out to him. Step out in faith and know him. You don't need more information. You've sat through enough sermons. You've sat through enough small groups. You've read enough books. You've gone to enough classes. It's just time to obey and to live it out in that way. And now, guess what happens when you obey? You know him in a new and fresh way. And guess what happens? Now you will obey that. And again, it will keep feeding the cycle. But it's time to obey. Who is the Lord that I should obey him, he is the Lord without rival. He is the Lord that is unmatched, that he is powerful, he is merciful, he is loving, he is the Lord of lords, he is the king of kings, and he is always victorious. And it's in the name of Jesus, he has the name that is above every name. That is why we obey. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads and pray.